Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Michael, this is fun to talk to Jason Furman today. It is indeed. He's the chairman of the Council of uh, Economic Advisors. And um, uh, Jason, perhaps the dumbest question I got uh, this week was from me, right? And and I I would never say it came from a tall, bow-tied man. Do you think the White House will celebrate the news on household median income? Uh, we were we were pretty happy to see the report and happy to see what it uh, meant for all Americans. And, and I should say I'm really happy to be on your show because we just heard you. You know, every other minute you talk about what happens in the stock market. Every other minute you talk about what's happening on Treasury yields. It's only once a year that we get a really comprehensive picture about how Americans are doing in the economy, what their incomes are, what poverty is, what health insurance is. Those are ultimately the most important things in the economy. So I think it's great that at least once a year um, we, we have a chance to talk about them. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, you'll be gone next year, so you can't come back. Well, you can come back, but you be <laughs> probably at the Council of Economic Advisors. Anyway, um, we did see me- household median incomes rise, rise a lot, Five. Uh, over five percent, we're uh, up to um, uh, fifty-six thousand. Uh, what is it? Five hundred sixteen uh, dollars. On the other hand, income inequality widened quite a bit. Uh, those in the bottom tenth decile barely saw their incomes rise. Those in the ninetieth and ninety-fifth um, saw a lot of gains. So, uh, is this largely because the stock market is going up? Oh, you know, I, I, I hate to correct you there. If you look at twenty fifteen, though. Um, you saw a 5.2% increase for the median household. If you look at a household at the 10th percentile, you actually saw a 7.9% increase. So the biggest increases in this report yeah. were for households at the bottom. But this is The smallest th- increases were for households at the top, but everyone gained. So it was good news all around. And there's a couple different ways to measure inequality, something economists call the Gini coefficient, the ratio of people at the 90th percentile to the 10th percentile, the share of income going to the top or bottom. All of those improved a bit in 2015. There are obviously much more inequality than we had a couple decades ago, um, but it did get a little bit better last year. Uh, part of the problem with um, with measuring in percentages, though, is, uh, and I'm going to measure in a different percentage to, to argue back with you, is, you know, over uh, the last uh, couple of years, the share of uh, U.S. income going to the lower decile went from 3.3 to 3.4 percent. Uh, for the top 10 percent, it's still uh, 20, basically 22 percent. So the rich are getting richer faster than the poor are. Well, you're saying in absolute dollars? Yeah. I mean, a 1 percent gain for someone who makes a million dollars is worth more than a 10 percent gain well, for someone who makes share, share uh, 50,000 dollars. is still... Yeah, and it's still, uh, you know, not 
not uh, evening out, shall we say? Um, not, you know. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've had a huge rise in inequality since the 1970s. And, you know, this report for 2015, we moved in the right direction and we moved in the right way, which is everyone gained. You know, even at the top of the distribution, you got, um, you know, 2.9% real income gain. That's a, that's a great gain, the 90th percentile. I was happy to see that. Um, but I was also happy to see that the gains are even bigger at the 10th percentile. Uh, Jason, uh, you have been uh, a leader with the Brookings Institute and throughout your career at cutting through the BS. The poverty line or the official poverty measure is one of the great debatable footballs of American economics, hugely politically tinged. Would you define the poverty level not as an Obamaite or a Trumpite or a Clintonite, et cetera, et cetera, but how does Jason Furman define poverty? Well, I, you know, any, anything's a little bit arbitrary, and we all have different notions of what it is. Um, what I think we should do is take you know, a clear line and then adjust it a little bit, maybe for the cost in your area, maybe if you have a lot of medical expenses. But then the important thing is also to capture all the resources you get, both what you make on your job, but also if you get nutritional assistance, if you get health, help with your health care, mm-hmm. make sure you're counting those as well so you can really look yeah. at our policies working. Mike, I was at the Carlisle Hotel last night. I got good nutritional assistance as well. <laughs> I take your point, Dr. Furman, that we've lifted all boats. Did we lift boats because of the minimum wage? Can Republicans say, oh, this is just the Obama administration lifting us up to 15 20 or $40 an hour? And can the Democrats say, look, this is what we did? I, I mean, I understand you've got a political mandate, but is there a political tinge to this report? Well, I, I think there's a, it helps make the case for a set of economic policies, sure. And certainly... Um, some of the gains we've seen for workers at the bottom are because we've seen states across this country choose to raise their minimum wages. At the same time, um, the federal government hasn't acted, and, and we'd like to see them do that. So I, I think this does certainly help make the case for that type of policy. Uh, we are hearing from more and more central bankers, <clears throat> including uh, Janet Yellen recently, that uh, we need fiscal policy at this point. Central banks are tapped out. Uh, I realize that you haven't got a whole lot of time left in office, but what do you think the odds are? Uh, is, is anybody in Washington starting to uh, agree with her? Anybody on the legislative side? Oh, President Obama has been for years pushing for more substantial investments in our infrastructure. Yeah, but is it selling we, up on Capitol Hill? Right. Well, we got one at the end of last year. We got a five-year bill for our highways and our rail. It was a 5% increase in inflation-adjusted terms above what we're spending now. So that was a decent start, but we should certainly be doing a lot more, and that's something you know, I would love to see in the future. Uh, Dr. Furman, Donald Trump will talk today, I believe, about corporate taxes. There's a bipartisan effort to get all that money abroad back here. Where's common ground between Republicans and Democrats on the corporate tax debate? Yeah, I don't, um, you know, speak to 
to the campaign, so I'll let others do that. But as we engage with Congress, I've noticed I've been working on business tax reform from the beginning of this administration. I'd say over the last seven years, there's been a decent amount of convergence. Republicans in Congress talk about similar rates to what the president's talking about. Mm-hmm. We're all in the 20s. You know, there's, there's some differences there. There's similar ways to pay for that. We all agree it should be revenue neutral. Right. We all agree the international tax system is broken and you want something where you can move your money back and forth more easily. We think it's important okay. to have something like a minimum yeah. tax so that you're <clears throat> collecting some revenue, too. So okay. I think there's some common ground there okay. between the parties. Let me continue with Jason Furman. He is chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Dr. Furman, the first time I met you, you were reading one of my favorite, favorite monographs of all time, Frank Hahn and Robert M. Solo, a critical essay on modern macroeconomic theory. Full disclosure, folks, this gorgeous little tome is a little mathy. It's got Furman math in it, and Furman is fluent in this, and I'm not. That's a big decision, big distinction here. But seriously, Jason, critical essay on modern macroeconomic theory. Where is our modern macroeconomic theory? Is there an orthodox? Is there a new orthodox? Or are we going to have to rip up the script? The system is so distorted. You know, there's all sorts of macro research. I think some of it I find more useful. Some of it I find um, less useful. I think a certain fraction of the profession has gone in a direction that's a little bit abstracted from reality. And, you know, I think you can indulge that for a decade or two. But if after 20 years you still haven't figured things out better, you know, maybe too long on that approach. But there's also a lot of people doing really great research that's helping us understand you know, all sorts of things in monetary policy, fiscal policy, you know, economic growth, and, you know, is related to the world and that, that I personally find useful. So I, I think it's hard to generalize. You need to brief the president on the conundrum of productivity. There's a lot of moving parts, capital dynamics, labor dynamics, and the residual total factor productivity. Okay, great. Across all three dynamics is technology. Is technology our friend or enemy? Oh, technology is our friend. The more of it, the better. You know, sometimes it can be a high-class problem. It can create some side effects, but then the role of policy isn't to have less technology. It's to address those side effects. How do we do that? I mean, what is a prescriptive firm and policy to help the body of Americans who feel overwhelmed by technology read the productivity numbers or, you know, some proxy of them and say, I'm not part of the American dream? First of all, it's it's important for people to understand that our problem now, you know, is that productivity growth is too slow. So one thing we really need to be doing is investing more in research, infrastructure, reforming our business tax system, expanding international trade, all the steps we need to take so we can have more productivity growth. Um, It's certainly the case that some of that can put pressure on some people. So having a labor market that functions better, that helps more people participate in the workforce, helping people be Mm -hmm. trained for jobs, search for jobs, create jobs through um, steps like infrastructure for some of the people that might otherwise have difficulty. All of those types of policies are important as well. 
Would you suggest, particularly after your public service, that we need an industrial policy? This goes back really to World War II. I mean, the idea of we we gifted industrial policies to other nations, Japan through uh, MacArthur and and others, the Marshall Plan to Europe, et cetera. Does America need an an industrial policy to jumpstart a manufacturing, goods-producing renaissance that will put people to work in basic jobs? I wouldn't support an industrial policy, but I think we should have a policy that lets the markets pick the winners and losers, mm-hmm. but certainly in areas like you know research and innovation, left to its own devices, companies are going to do too little of that because they get some mm-hmm. of the benefits, but some of the benefits spill over to others. That's why it's appropriate to have a tax credit for research and innovation. That's why right. it's appropriate for the federal government to be spending money in that area. But we should be doing it in a broad way, not, you know, right. you get a tax credit for research about X, but not about Y. If you're doing research, um, you should get a tax credit. When do you go back to the real world? Is it, is it like day? January, uh, January 20th. Okay, January 20th, you're going to wander back to the real world. What do you want to do? I mean, you came out of the think tanks and some academics. Do you have a great desire to write the mother of all books or to go back to <laughs> academics? What's Jason Fermi going to do? Um, I'll figure that out in uh, January, but I certainly expect to be speaking and writing and doing research into the same set of issues that I'm I'm working on now, which are about how to help advance economic growth and make sure more people share. Yeah, are you growth. kidding? That was such a non-answer. I can't believe it. Jason <laughs> Furman, thank you so much. He's the chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. I really can't say enough, folks, about Dr. Furman's white papers, the thoughtful papers he and his staff put together. Um, there's always a political tinge to anything you get out of uh, the White House, but at the same time, they are thought-provoking on this linkage of policy into our economics. Chris Crisanti is here. He, uh, of course, runs Crisanti Capital Management. And um, you came in here with, I mean, people should see the size of your wallet. You you've got all your cash and it's you're carrying a lot of it with cash you in there. That's yeah. absolutely right. Mark. Um, it looks like our well, portfolio. The, uh, the, yeah, it's the markets. Uh, you don't like it anymore. Basically, is the is the bottom we line. We don't. Here. I mean, we're still seventy percent invested, but we do have thirty percent. Thirty percent in cash. That's a big number. That's a big number for an equity manager, and 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 the reason is that we see bond yields giving. The correct signal, which is slow down, certainly abroad, and we think by the end of the year here. Uh, And uh, the equity markets are kind of whistling by the graveyard. And we think that this is an opportunity to take profits, but also invest in in, in a rifle shot kind of way in in companies that have real value and that are already down. Well, a lot of uh, people are out saying the market's going to correct sometime soon. Uh, do you have a, a thought on what kind of correction we're going to, I mean, we're going to see a 10% number, which is a, an actual correction, or is this just going to be kind of a stumble along mode for a while and, until sure. we get on our feet? Well, well, I honestly think over the next 18 months, what you'll see is a garden variety recession-like environment. Whether we get to a recession, I'm not really? sure. But but I do think that there'll be evidence of slowing, especially as the Fed turns from, you know, being easy to being neutral to maybe being, you know, a little hawkish as we as we move along. So our theory is that keep cash and use it 
just very, uh, very particularly in those situations where the risks, uh, you know, are not as big as the rewards, and uh, that's I unusual. In a minute, I want to ask more about um, about your outlook, but uh, I just want to go back to the idea that you're at this very high level of cash. What do your investors say to that? Well, we're fortunate to have investors that appreciate that 100% invested all the time isn't necessarily the right way to go. Although it's it's quite unusual. This is actually the highest cash level we've had in in 15 years. In fact, we were we were more invested in 2000 and in, in 2008. And and here, what we're saying is not so much the market's definitely going to go down, but we can't find securities that offer the risk reward that we'd like for our clients. And they're patient. And I suspect in six months, we won't be 30% cash. Uh, but I mean, you you don't want to invest in uh, other than equities? Uh, is there not a place to park cash that, uh, to, that will make some yield at this point? Sure. And, and if we were going out longer term, I would do that. I think right now, I think there's risk in the fixed income market. There are, there are a couple of preferred securities that we happen to like right now, but that's kind of one-offs. But I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, we're cash, so we're going to go into fixed income. I think that would be, in fixed income these days, it's it's a return-free risk, as they say. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's talk more about that in just a moment with Chris Crisanti from Crisanti capital management. Uh, Chris, is there a growth trap? I mean, nobody ever talks about a growth trap. Sure. It's a value trap. There's got to be a growth trap. There's a growth trap and that it it ends up happening when you're you're buying a stock with a multiple of 20 or 25 and the growth turns out not to be there. Okay. So I got a dividend growth uh, exercise where, you know, you try to figure out legitimate dividend growth. How do you figure out legitimate multiples on growth stocks? You know, Tom, that's a question we've been asking for two generations at the, you know, at the, at the <laughs> New York Securities Analyst. And uh, what ends up happening is you draw the line and you do a terminal value, and uh, the economy intervenes, macro factors intervene. So you have to mix the macro with the with the uh, pen pen and paper analysis, and that then it's very difficult to do, especially in an economy like this with so much uncertainty based on macro exogenous events like central yeah. banks and politics. It raises a question. Um, I'll go back to what you said a minute ago about a recession-like environment for the next 18 months. We often see this ahead of presidential elections. And then after the election is over, people get encouraged again. Uh, Do you think this is a different kind of election where people will wake up on the day after Election Day and and, uh, say, you know, we're still worried? No, I think you have the dynamics right, Mike. I think what happened, regardless of who wins, there'll be this feeling of a fresh start. And I think regardless, again, of who wins, there'll be a reaching across the aisle and trying to get something done. My best bet is corporate tax reform. So you'll have a little bit of excitement there. But still, if you pull the lens back, we still will have anemic uh, growth here, you know, 2% or less. And in addition, you'll have, we think, China and Europe slowing down to a much more marked degree than we have right now. Uh, I want to go back to uh, one other thing that you said uh, earlier, and that's the signal from the bond market. Um, how do you know what the bond market is actually saying in terms of yields when you have distortions from central banks? Sure. Uh, I mean, not just our central bank, but because of what's going on in Europe, you have European buyers coming in and buying up stuff. And then Tom and I were just talking about uh, with LIBOR, the new LIBOR rules, uh, the new money market rules coming in, everybody piling out of 
funds into government funds, which aren't going to be affected. Sure. Th that affects the market. There's so many external things. How do you parse out what the market's actually That's true. I, I would agree with you that the absolute level of rates is very hard, where they ought to be without these exogenous pressures. Having said that, the recent movement, because the, the central banks haven't been necessarily buying more bonds than they were last year, and certainly obviously not the Fed, but we've yet we've seen long rates drop substantially year on year. And I think that's a valid signal of a fear of weakness, and it's borne out by the GDP statistics, whether it's in China or Europe or here. But in now our max growth right now is 2%. That used to be kind of the floor for a decent economic times. If it's 2%, and if you take the reciprocal of that, you end up with a higher stock multiple, right? So do we need to get used to Sure, but that's a, that's a tough theory to push to I, its I limits, agree. Tom, because a half a percent means we got great, great stock multiples. And I, I don't think that really yeah. uh, is going to work once folks go from – it's a terrific time because we can borrow money cheaply to, yeah. oh, my gosh, rates are low because we're about to really slow let me, down. Let me bring up a nameless blue chip, folks. This is an iconic American company uh, with a dividend growth of 7%, a yield of just over 2%. They have 38,000 employees. And, and what I see is corporations in this economic environment managing revenues, managing EBITDA, out to a net income, which is, which is, you know, okay. It's an okay market. How do you invest in an okay market? I think, you, you again, you take a rifle instead of a shotgun, and you pick the places where there's been uh, way too much pessimism. For example, I'm not saying you should buy this, but Wells Fargo might be a place I'd look now. Traditionally a very well-managed bank. It's got a nice dividend yield. Uh, and yeah, it's got a nice market position, and it's down on factors that I think, if you hold it for two or three years, could be you know well yeah. in the rearview mirror. Mike, it's fifty to forty-six essentially off the most difficult two weeks they've had. Sounds like a Monday Night Football score. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what kind of multiples should would it, would let me put it this way would, would attract you back? Um, where where should the where should the market be? Where can it go to that uh, you start buying again? You know that's a question that we're not multiple based, and I think it would be a fool's game to say, well, at at uh, fourteen times we love the market, at seventeen times we don't like it, because historically, you know, as, as Tom will certainly tell you, there's not a big correlation between multiples and performance until you get to the real extremes, the ends of the mm -hmm. bell the bell curve. So what I say, don't look at the multiple, look at the valuation of each individual potential investment compared to the macro environment in which we now live. And I'm only saying the macro environment in which we're living now is substantially grimmer, I think, than the market seems to think it is. So I would say 10 or 15 percent lower makes me more comfortable in this kind of macro environment. Uh, but again, those things can change. Why do you feel comfortable uh, being outside the mainstream in this case? Well, first of all, uh, my clients pay for not the market performance, but uh, and you can't beat the market by being a consensus guy. So you have to pick and choose your items. But here, the risk seems so asymmetrical to me that I don't think I'm missing a lot of upside by having a bunch of cash right now. And I feel very comfortable in days like the last in the last few week, uh, days when the market goes down sharply and I've got some money in our back pocket that we can spend. I look at uh, where we are in this idea, the dawning reality when people look at their 401k envelopes of a single-digit world. 
Sure. What single digit level are you? I mean, John Tucker, how how has it looked recently? We have the We're annual surveillance opening. Well, after last week, I didn't account for that, but uh, <laughs> yes. it's a 301k now. Sure. You know, you, you open up the we open up the 401k envelope and today Tucker, but everybody's getting used to single digit, aren't they, Chris? They are, and I'd go back, you know, 2,500 years to King Solomon and say there's a time to reap and a time to sow. And we may just be in the reaping period right now. And that's not bad, and I'm not I'm not calling for 2008. I'm just saying mm-hmm. let's guard our grain and spend it when we can. Michael Dow up 8.6% one year back, 7.5% S&P, and the NASDAQ uh, all-in composite 6.4%. Um, Middle before, single. Before we let you go, we don't do a lot of stock picking stuff on this show, but uh, one of the stocks that you like is Apple. Nobody in the last 12 to 18 months has liked Apple. You're right. <laughs> Isn't so, that a nice so, way to be so contrarian? Yeah. What, what, do you, what do you see turning um, their profits around? Well, it's funny because, for example, the reviews on the iPhone, the tech guys say, hey, it's not that much different, it's not that great, but I think they're missing the point. The point here reminds me of when you've done this a long time, you remember stuff. Intel in the 90s had the Pentium chip, and it was okay, it wasn't that great, blah, 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 but... Everyone and their mother had a PC. They were on the. They were on that highway, just like here. Everyone's got an iPhone. Everyone's waiting for the seven. As long as it's good enough, and this certainly is good enough, they're going to upgrade. And we've seen terrific numbers this week from the from the carriers on the pre-sales. And so we're very excited about that. Plus, if you can get this stock at twelve yeah. times earnings, you know what's the big deal? But full disclosure, Michael, I made my pre-order. There you I go. Get my, well, did, I get my phone in did, April. Did I you think. did you talk to Tom about his experience with uh, the iPhone recently? Before oh, I download, yeah, I download every time I'm in, folks. Tom's complaining I, about it. I right? am of the bricked, <laughs> right? I, I am. I got bricked, but I would I, still observe that Tom still has an iPhone and is not switching. Exactly. Right. That is, I totally agree with you on that, and certainly is is I think David Kirkpatrick said we were at the FT Book uh, Show. Thank you, Lionel Barber, for that hospitality, and I, I think it was David Kirkpatrick that said, you know, it couldn't have happened at a better time for Apple. If Samsung have these phone charges. Right. It doesn't hurt when your biggest competitor's yeah. phones are catching on fire. That's called right. an exogenous shock right. when you're a value investor. <laughs> the product's on fire. Uh, Chris Cassanti, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. The backdrop for Mr. Trump and Secretary Clinton is a presidential moving average of our real economic growth. Back to 07, a four-year moving average of 3.3% GDP growth. We haven't had that, but boy, have we come close. 1.9% four-year economic growth. Without question, there is no guest we've had that's more dead on on this than Sri Kumar. Uh, Kamal, you've called for recession. Maybe it hasn't happened. Lachman Achathan, I put in that group. But I would suggest, Sri, for a large part of America, they've always been in recession. What percentage of America hasn't enjoyed 1.9% GDP growth? 30%? I would imagine there are 30 to 50% of the population are 
are really not doing well, whether it is in terms of having to accept part-time employment rather than full-time employment or going for jobs which are lower paying than what they had through 2007. Mm -hmm. So I think it may be as much as half of the workforce if you define it that way. And again, Tom, talking about the recession, uh, which I had called for, as you had mentioned, as did uh, Lakshman Achutan as well. But recession is defined not just as two quarters fall in GDP, but the overall malaise spreading to different parts of the economy. So in some ways, I would maintain that the economy never recovered from the 2008 financial crisis, even though the National Bureau of Economic Research says that the recovery began in July of 2009. So it depends on the viewpoint. I think overall the economy didn't really take off. Mm -hmm. And if you compare with what happened after the early 1980s, very severe recession that we had, the recovery was also equally dramatic. We had one quarter where the growth was more than 10% annualized rate. We have not seen anything like that this time around. If you, if you can you know, set the definition, of course, you can define anything uh, the way you want to. Uh, but in terms of the NBER uh, and its criteria, or even the old uh, two quarters uh, thing, there don't seem to be any numbers that are pointing towards a contraction of GDP at this point. Um, it is not pointing to a contraction of GDP at this point, Mike, but we did have since 2009, since the so-called recovery began, we have had some quarters, single quarters of negative growth. Well, that has happened periodically throughout history. True, but not in what is supposed to be a recovery from a very sharp economic crisis. It shouldn't happen before you've had... Well, no, Carmen Reinhardt would take issue with that. You know, uh, She and Ken Rogoff in her book would say, because it was a financial recession, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see very weak growth for, what did she tell us, Tom, like seven, eight years. So we're only now just getting close to the point where we could actually grow faster. Well, I would, I would disagree with that, Mike. I think if the correction had been to let the free markets take, take the hit in terms of the markets and not to have three QEs and eight years of zero interest rates, we would probably be, financial crisis or no, we would be on the path to a very strong economic recovery because then you would have had changes in the markets. You would have had moves toward employment tax credit, you would have have business tax credit allowing you to bring money back into the United States. And all of that would have caused employment to rise and the growth to pick up. And the reason why that hasn't happened and why we are still suffering from this productivity malaise is because you oh. depend <clears throat> on zero interest rates. And if <coughs> you are retired or if you depend on a fixed income and your interest income is now zero, you're not going to be consuming. It's very simple economics. Yeah. Sri, I want to go back to what you commented on in part-time, full-time, and the feeling that people have that they're underemployed or so. What is your reading on that right now? How underemployed is America? Well, if you look at the U6 unemployment rate, uh, Tom, where you look at people who are working part-time, even though you, they would like to have full-time employment, we are still not got back to a recovery level of U6, even though the U3 number, the one which is commonly quoted, has come below 5%. That is not the case with the U6. 
And not only is it typically higher than the normally known un unemployment rate, mm -hmm. but it is also high by historical standards. Second, look at the participation rate. And whenever I mention it, they say participation rate has gone down because of demographic factors and the Americans aging. Look at the dem also the participation rate for the 25 to 54-year-olds, also published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And that has not picked up either, and that is not due to demographics. So clearly something is amiss. The labor market has a lot of uh, slack, and people are forced to accept part-time employment. That's not an economic recovery. Mike, I think it's a huge debate. I, yeah. I see a lot of economists saying we're back to full-time and almost to a person, the mail I get says just a bunch of malarkey. Well, we're not back just to full time. It's come down a tremendous amount since the recession, but you still have maybe a million more people than average who are who are working part time. Now, you got to tease out from that how much is a change, a secular change in the way companies hire. Uh, they may just want more part time people, and there has been research that. Women are going more to part-time these days for whatever reason. Uh, they want more time at home. So it, it's hard to know exactly. But I, I come back, Sri, again to the whole idea that this is a, was a different kind of recession um, and, and the Reinhardt Rogoff argument that uh, it just takes a very long time to recover from this because you don't have the credit impulse going through the economy. Everybody pulls back. And instead of, you know, suddenly you cut rates and you get an, a reaction in the home building and auto sectors, you know, the banks just haven't been lending and people haven't wanted to borrow because they're so afraid of getting into debt. I Again, I, as I said, I d differ from that opinion, Mike, and the reason for that is if this uh, recession was of a different kind, why did the Federal Reserve deal with it as if it was a normal kind of recession and they made it worse? If they had instead handled it differently and if we had uh, had changes in the employment regulations, profit regulations, tax regulations... I think we would be in much better shape than before. So, uh, again, uh, to say that Rogoff and Reinhardt talked about it and therefore that is the excuse for it is, I think it's a cop-out. Uh, I think if that's the case, we should have done other things, I think, to help out. Within this, Sri, is the idea of what is the run rate of U.S. GDP? What is it? Can you get above 3%? Uh, the run the, rate of GDP? Unless we do something dramatically different with policy, Tom, uh, fiscal policy and structural policy, I think we are stuck at somewhere in the range of about 2%, not even getting to the 3% level. So we are going to be much lower. And you have Fed members like uh, John Williams talking about the now famous R star or the natural rate of interest being very low. And if it is very low, there is no indication that it's mm -hmm. going to rise, that anything that is being done is going to make it rise. Well, I, I like having you on because I can steal charts from you all the time. I'm just going to put out on Bloomberg Radio Plus a chart comparing the U6 unemployment as divided by the unemployment rate. And real simple, there's been exactly one other time in modern history where we've been here. And as Mike, as you said, there's been an improvement, but we're still miles away. My, I didn't realize this. I mean, I knew it was improved, but no, that's a great chart, uh, yeah. Tom. Yeah, it's remarkable. Not not the U6 minus unemployment, 
but divided by as compared to is a whole different feel. Sri Kumar with us on the rise and fall of American growth. Of course, Robert Gordon making a huge splash with a book. Even though Sri Kumar talks about secular stagnation, I don't get a sense of you looking back with nostalgia to a previous century and saying this is as good as it gets. If that's the case, how do we get back to the rise of American economic growth? In order to get to back to it, and if you look back um, as to what made us different, what made us grow rapidly, Tom, first thing you come across is it is not monetary policy and interest rates. And you, you look to see what it was, and it was innovation, the opportunity to grow, opportunities to hire people, good education, and a system that encourages growth. So all what all of these refer to a structure rather than policy that comes from Washington. Um, and that, I think, is what you see time and time again led to the U.S. economic growth and the, the, vib- the vibrancy of the growth. If you go back to the 1870s, and if you, like, uh, as you see from a book like uh, Ron Chernow's uh, House of Morgan and what led to the growth in the second half of the 19th century, was the railroad development, the steel and coal development, and the opportunities there that did it. Uh, what, what did the Federal Reserve do? It did nothing because it didn't exist. 1913, when the Federal Reserve came, we thought it was a panacea, that it was going to take care of all future ills, but that is not the way mm-hmm. it has happened. Again, another period of slow stagnation, depression in the 1930s, what changed was the fact that war-related demand boosted the demand for goods and services. The American dominance really established itself compared with the United Kingdom, which was also sharing the glory within the interwar years. And that was a big positive for the United States. Now, we need to reinvent ourselves afresh. And what we have had in the last eight years is the same old tired, tired old policy, and that's what we need to get out of. So are you suggesting an industrial policy? I am suggesting an industrial policy, Tom, very much. And if it's an emphasis on infrastructure, so that's a great start. But don't stop there. Deal with other things that mm-hmm. you have to do, especially the education of the youth, where I think the emphasis should be put. Going back to your previous question, which I think which was, which is a solid one, Well, what percentage of the people are suffering today? And you have a lot of people who are young who cannot get good jobs. The participation rate is very low for them. And you are a lot of people who are unable to continue education because of the burden of of the student-related debt. What is being done there as opposed to increasing the money supply or setting the interest rate on a month-to-month basis? Those are the changes I would look for. What if we don't get that? What do you see happening in 2017? We'll have a new president, but if Congress is not enthusiastic about a big spending program, what happens to the economy and to the markets? If you don't, Mike, and I'm I'm hoping, maybe I'm hoping more than forecasting, that with the new president, whoever he or she may be, uh, that you will have, in fact, a change in policy because we can't take it anymore. Uh, but if they don't, then you have the experience of Japan. We have, they have had 25 years of stagnation and still going with stagnation. We have only had eight years of slow growth. We have 17 more to go. Is this our last chance rodeo, basically? 
Uh, it is either it is the last chance to turn it around, but if you don't, you have another four years or eight years of the similar kind of a situation. That's the choice. I look, Sri, at the view forward and to get away from the secular stagnation you speak of, and you did mention infrastructure. The hope right now is a shift to fiscal policy. Do you share that hope? Will we see that? I share that hope because infrastructure expenditure, which I support, would require a shift to fiscal policy. Uh, but all I'm saying, Tom, is that that is not sufficient. You need to go beyond fiscal policy, but essentially give monetary policy a rest, a long, long maybe ill-deserved rest, but a rest all the same, and go to fiscal policy first and go to structural changes almost at the same time. The reason mm -hmm. being, structural changes are tough to take. As German Sh Chancellor Schroeder realized when he lost the 2005 elections after the changes, so you need to have a palliative going along with it. So infrastructure spending would help you stay in office, keep the people happy, even as you're making structural changes which are good in the long term, but in the short term are politically no. unpopular. Sri, thank you so much. And again, I'm going to steal your chart comparing the Thank U6 you. Great to, to see U3. your charts, Tom. It's a one, two, three, Mike, four standard deviations off of a 21-year trend. Wow. That is wow. Impressive. That's a Sri Kumar chart. We'll steal that and use it. Going out on Bloomberg Radio Plus in a moment. We'll do it on Facebook Live, maybe today if we can, and then on to television tomorrow. On all sorts of media, this is Bloomberg Surveillance. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.